You're watching Global Trade This Week with Pete Mento and Doug Draper. Welcome to another edition of Global Trade This Week, brought to you by our good friends at Cap Logistics. And um, in case you haven't noticed immediately, I am not joined by my normal co-host, Mr. Doug Draper, who is, as we say, on assignment. Instead, we have um, Wonder Kid producer, Keenan Bra with us uh, this week. It's always fun when Keenan gets on the microphone and um, just proves to everyone, including our viewers, how much smarter than Doug and I he is. So, Keenan, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you, my friend. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, exciting to be here. I look forward to hearing uh, what Doug has to say from his assignment tours in California. Uh, the first topic here has to do with the West Coast, and I bring mostly questions, hoping uh, maybe you have some additional insights. But our first topic here today is West Coast woes and denials. So as many of you already know, and if uh, you're a regular listener of the show, We've already been talking about the West Coast ports experiencing work stoppages, not quite an official strike, but definitely some sort of coordination going all the way from Seattle and Oakland and L.A. Um, it's a, a, a pretty bad situation as far as them just stopping working. And now it's getting to the point where, um, let's see here, the PMA, this uh Pacific Maritime Association uh, sent out a tweet this last weekend saying that the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, ILWU, have shut down cargo operations. Now they're kind of coming back and saying, um, we haven't actually made a strike. PMA is leveraging one-sided information to influence the process, quote unquote. Uh, despite what you are hearing from the PMA, West Coast ports are open as we continue to work under our expired collective bargaining agreement. So it's something that, you know, we've been through a rush of international logistics. There's already been delays and people, shippers are moving their operations away from the West Coast. And now uh, there's a not quite a strike strike going on. Um, just uh, bringing this up as a topic of discussion, have you seen anything like this before? Is this uncharted territories? Uh, normally, I'm used to like, hey, we have negotiations going on. These are negotiations with uh, frame controls and what are we going to call this? And no, we're not striking, but you need to give us more money because uh, we've been operating without a contract. So what comes to your mind as we're a week or a week and a half into this sort of stuff? Well, you know, the whole deal was we're not going to, as long as we're negotiating, we're not going to strike. Right. You know, that okay. was the deal. And then it was, well, we're really not negotiating, but we're really not striking. <laughs> and it's, it's, um, I, 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 there's all these words I want to use that I'm not going to use because they're, they're adjectives that don't serve the greater purpose here. And I try to, I try to, we try to evolve, avoid politics. So what, and I, the last thing I want to do is be perceived as taking a side here. But what an outside, a casual outside observer sees is the, um, the unions are in a position where they have only a couple of things they can use for leverage. Let's be honest. They're the labor. And if they need to get something done and something's not getting done, you just don't go to work. And the management has very few pieces of leverage too, which what's their leverage, right? We hold the contract. And if you want things in the contract, we've got to be the ones that put them in the contract and sign it eventually. I mean, and then there's a huge piece of leverage over both of them, politics. 
And it's hard to talk about this without getting into politics because both sides of these negotiations have a lot to do with politics, both sides of the aisle, as it were. And then there's countless numbers of actors that also have a lot to do with the outcome, whether it's the Draymond, whether it's the ocean carriers, and people like us that work for logistics firms. We all have so much to do with this that also have our connections in the political world. And everyone is putting pressure on these two groups to do something while they put pressure outward politically. And I think what you're seeing here is the fine tuning of what has to be something close to an agreement where they're, they're getting to something that's really important. And my little birds, which are generally very, very um, uh, unreliable. So I'm going to put that up right up front, you know, but I'm, I'm hearing the same things from a lot of people, Keenan, which is they're extremely close to an agreement. Okay. And that there's, there's a couple of major things that have to be decided. And those things that have to be decided are big enough that they're, they're going to use whatever leverage both sides are to get what they want before something is signed. So I don't know what it would be if it's something about automation, if it's a final decision about, you know, how many people will be involved on every hold. I don't know. I have absolutely no insight into that. But if you read the things that Peter Tershwell put out over the weekend regarding the impact of slowdown, slowdowns, perceived slowdowns, you know, no one's saying that they slowed down, perceived um, calling out sick and people not showing up. They're saying we're showing up to work. There is no backlog. The ports are open. The ships are being, and then the owners and people that are associated with port are saying, well, you could have fooled us. Yeah. It sure looked like one to us. So if you can have a work stoppage without officially having a work stoppage, that appeared to happen. But because the supply chain is in the state that it is now, which is slower, more lethargic, I don't think we felt it as sharply as we could have felt, say, in the, back, in the last work stoppage that happened sure. in the aughts. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's what I think we're seeing right now. Well, and it's interesting, you were mentioning the politics. So without us, you know, getting into our politics of it, like you mentioned, there are um, political aspects to this and people reaching out. It looks like uh, just on Friday, uh, the largest U.S. business group, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, reached out and is urging President Biden to get involved and intervene immediately. So I don't know if that would look something similar to what happened with the railroads. Um, yeah, to your point, without knowing all the details of what's on the uh, agendas of each side for the negotiations, I'm hoping they actually come to a good agreement and not just a, you're not allowed to hold the economy hostage, so kick yeah. the can down the road and not really address the underlying problems. Uh, so we'll see um, what Biden and his administration, Buttigieg, anyone else gets involved in what they say, uh, though, hoping for the best because, yeah, politics aside, we're all hoping that things move and people are compensated and things are going in a sustainable direction rather than uh, making our transportation system weaker over time. You know, Keenan, and that's a, something I think we can't overlook is I don't think either side really wants Washington to be the arbiter of this. It's, it reminds me of when I was younger and my cousins and I would get into a fight and my grandfather would say, you better sort this out amongst yourselves. Cause if, if I have to get involved, no one's going to be happy. Yep. And I, and I, I don't think that either side would, would ultimately be very pleased with how this would turn out if DC got 
got really involved. So we don't want to see that. Well, they collectively don't want to see that happen. I think we as consumers of what they sell, we just want this to end. Um, we want it to end and, and we want to get back to doing quote unquote business as usual. I think we want to have some stability in all markets, no matter how big or small they are. We want we want things to be predictable. And right now they're anything but. Absolutely. And that's a great analogy. I could just imagine, you know, you think you're getting a short term win by going to grandpa saying it's my turn to play with the toy and then grandpa just takes it away or then just, you know, comes back and now asserts a little bit more authority over playtime than you never really intended that in the beginning. So, uh, yeah, great analogy. there. grandfather takes the toy and breaks it. (laughs) Nobody gets to play with it, which would have been probably the way he would have looked at it. Great call. What do you have for us today on the first topic? Yeah, topic number one is a little bit esoteric, but important. Um, This is a business where there's really two types of companies. There are ones who make great money opportunistically, and then there are ones that think more strategically. And the strategic ones, um, because of of the kind of money that we talk about in logistics, they tend to be larger. You, You need money to make money in this business. It's a lot like energy. It's a lot like infrastructure. Smaller ones had a hell of a time the past couple of years where just the being um, generally victims of circumstance, they can also be winners of circumstance. So you and I could have had an NVOCC license and just gone through my Rolodex, if you know what that is. <laughs> I've, I've heard of the term. I've never actually seen one. Seen one? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't have one anymore, smart ass, before you ask, but uh, we could have gone through my Rolodex and just called people for a couple of years and said, I've got some access to containers. Call me if you need them. And then eventually that phone would have rang, buddy. And we would have sold someone a 40 footer out of China for 20 something thousand bucks. And we could have made money, you know, and a lot of people did. And hopefully they saved that money because you can't really make money that way like you used to. There's still profit to be made and margin to be made. But the strategic companies now, the ones that are bigger or the ones that are about to become bigger, have saved that money and they're looking, a lot of them are looking at project forwarding. The reason for this has to do with what most investors, private equity firms, and financiers see as what should be a boom in infrastructure spending globally. Uh, probably let's say four years from now, three years from now, depending on how a couple of things fall. So I'll give you a few examples. If the, the conflict, the war, the way that most people see it between Ukraine and Russia were to come to some detente or to cease, or if there was a peace agreement that was made, Ukraine has to be rebuilt. So the rebuilding of Ukraine is probably going to be done by Western powers. Those Western powers are going to need a lot of stuff, a lot of equipment, raw materials, and people moved into that part of the world. And that's all going to be done by project logistics. It's going to need overweight um, availability. It's going to need ships, and it's going to need all kinds of equipment to get things there. And it's going to need to be done in a way that's bulky, hard to do, and cumbersome. That's where project forwarding comes into play. Another one will be, let's say that China and the United States find some way to work through their problems uh, soon. If they do, there's a lot of money to be made right now between those two countries in building infrastructure in China for energy, 
in China reinvesting in the United States. There's a lot of money in a lot of companies that work in the U.S. that have Chinese backing that want to build infrastructure. Believe it or not, in high-end technology, manufacturing, the list goes on and on and on. Canada is getting its toe deeply back in to energy exploration, into uh, new energy and alternative energy. And then the third one I'll give you is the rush to EVs, which, thank the Lord, Doug is not on right now to tell me how stupid <laughs> they are, uh, because I am a tree-hugging, bark-chewing hippie. I love talking about them in a positive way. Um, I don't think that Doug hates EVs. I think he just hates driving them. But yeah. the point I'm making is, is all of the EV infrastructure can't come from existing automotive infrastructure. A lot of it is going to have to be built. And because of that, it's going to require project forwarding to get it there. So I think you're going to see a significant number of these project forwarders who are big, but not huge, get gobbled up. And I think you're going to see a lot of the larger project forwarding companies begin to strategically, geographically place themselves in places like Africa and in places outside of Asia, certainly in Southeast Asia, in South America, and in parts of the Middle East to prepare for what's going to be a pretty big import-export market for these sorts of things that we're talking about, Eastern Europe as well. So I'm excited about that um, just because customs and trade Wherever things are wonky and people aren't used to doing that kind of work, there's usually money for crazy Uncle Pete here. So I'm, I'm excited to get engaged in that kind of work. Um, and I think it's going to be fun to watch. Will be really interesting. First questions that come to mind is I'm not closely following M&A activity. Have these already started or you're seeing it's about to? And I'm wondering if now or the near future is a good time because overall freight markets slowing down. So maybe some of these companies have been doing well and they're still busy, but they're not making as much margin. And so their, their valuations may not be quite as high. But to your point, there's probably a lot of ongoing or near to be soon big projects going on that will uh, require these services. So maybe it is a good time for the larger players with capital to pick up these uh, companies' capabilities and their customers too. Project forwarding is doing very well right now. From, from what I understand, there's, there's a lot of, there's already, a lot of government business falls under project forwarding. So that's okay. doing quite well. And you have a lot of these larger, more strategic thinking, more strategically aligned logistics firms who are sitting on a lot of money. So their shareholders, their boards of directors are saying to the leadership, hey, you have billions of dollars that you're sitting on and you can either do share buybacks, you can start being more aggressive with your dividends, we can make investments in traditional lines that we work on, or we can start doing acquisitions. And doing an acquisition is something that's likely to grow organically because of the way just the world's going seems to be smart, as opposed to doing an acquisition of what might be a failing asset because of the market and hoping that your brand of magic is going to make it do better. So like most things, Keenan, this is more Pete Wild speculation than anything I'm particularly seeing in the market. It just would occur to me it's probably where the business is going to go. Hmm. Very insightful. I'll be uh, keeping an eye out on the news with that in mind for sure. Good stuff. Oh, I will too. You know, you know, I like dunking on my predictions, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah.
So that brings us to halftime, brought to you by our friends at Cap Logistics, uh, caplogistics.com to learn more about them. Without their incredibly uh, generous support, we would not be able to bring you Global Trade this week, not the least of which because um, uh, Wonder Boy producer Keenan would not be able to do all the incredible technical things that make it happen. And um, we can't thank them enough for their ongoing support. Uh, and halftime is always... Doug's favorite part of the show. It is my least favorite part. Um, we really only do it to keep him happy. So I don't know. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? What do you want to do? I'll go first. Yeah, let's uh, keep keep Doug happy. And I'll try to make it super tangential related uh, to transportation. Uh, but my topic here for halftime today is the new UFO whistleblower. I'm sure many of you have heard of this because it's becoming mainstream news all over the place. Uh, I think uh, just last night, the full-length interview got released, but even before that, part, portions of it were released and people reporting um, apparently a pretty high-level, um, you know, member within the government who's had access to some of these programs and things going on as senators and people are asking questions is going through the quote-unquote official whistleblower pathways in order to make some pretty startling claims like the U.S. has, quote, quite a number of non-human vehicles. Like, not only do these things exist, those videos you've seen in 2017 and the likes, um, and this is brought to us by some of the same reporters who who helped break those video stories back then. Um, they're saying that they're confirmed they're not Russian, they're not Chinese, they're non-human, and not only that, we have some. So this is a, a wild, a wild time for uh, me and some of my friends with uh, some conspiracy curiosities. We'll entertain ideas. This is pretty much of what a lot of people have been saying has been going on for decades. But then now that there's a whistleblower and stuff is coming out, um, some friends are excited, but a lot of friends are suspicious. They ask, why now? Um, is this a Project Bluebeam type situation where it's a government psyop in order to, I don't know, to what Reagan said, you know, imagine if we had a common enemy, you know, how quickly our differences would evaporate type of thing or just a confusion as major stuff is going on with China and Taiwan and Ukraine? Is this just a distraction? Is it real? What's your initial take and then thoughts on this? Is it real? Is it PSYOP? It's totally real. And 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 here's, here, oh God, I wish Doug was on with us right now. This is when we do like a split screen with three of us. Uh-huh. Because, you know, Doug is always like, well, I don't know. Eh, you know, I, I'm like you, I want to believe. I want to believe. <laughs> I always think of that Carl Sagan line where he says, mathematically, it would be such a waste of space if if there was all, this infinite, never-ending space and we were the only things here. And then if everything is a possible reality, how unlikely it would be that there wasn't a more advanced group of organisms than us. And given how things go wrong in exploration – that something would not have come here and failed. So, the, and then you said that there could be a couple of, you're saying there's more than 12, that we've recovered more than 12 of them. It's not like one or two that some, which could have been somebody did something in their backyard, you know, no, there's a dozen of them. But the thing about this story that drives me the craziest, Kim Kardashian can put a picture of herself on the internet and a billion people will start talking about it. Mm -hmm. How is this not the biggest story? How are we not 
endlessly talking about this. How is this not, how is there not a new news channel solely focused on this? I, I don't know why in 2023 with all of our access to information and our, our, yeah, I'll call it addiction to data and information. We are not losing our collective minds over wanting answers to this because I know I can't get enough. We absolutely should be asking for that data. You know, if they, if they actually do have the materials, I understand there's probably quite a bit of national security and things involved, and that's why it's all been hush-hush till now. Um, but Right now, we don't really have the data. We don't have footage of the aliens, of non-human pilots. We don't have, uh, you know, any autopsy stuff of that. We don't have any materials that we've seen. We've seen footage, um, but we don't see all the footage just because of the nature of the sensors that they're being captured on. Some of that stuff's classified, um, even if the subject matter itself isn't. So, yeah, I think we should definitely should be calling for more data. And the implications of this would be huge, you know, um, for warfare, for space exploration, for clean energy technology, and bringing it back to the topic of the show for transportation. You know, we use a lot of energy in moving goods around the world. And if there's some uh, gravitational, anti-gravity, electromagnetic field, something that we could reverse engineer, um, we could move a lot with a lot fewer uh, emissions just from that type of climate perspective. So you think just that lobby would be interested um, for power generation and transportation alone. Uh, so Keenan, you don't go to Comic-Cons, right? I have not been to one, no. All right. I, I, as every, viewers know, I go to many. And there are, um, there are stratifications of nerddom okay. at, at the Comic-Con. And... There, I'm a Star Wars guy, as everybody knows. I love, I love Star Wars, and I love comic books. I've never really been a Star Trek guy, and the Star Trek people, they're they're not like the rest of us. And one of the reasons for that is, is they tend to be really into science and really into the applications of the geopolitical concepts of Star. Like they're they're. They're into this for, the, for a philosophical reason, and they love this stuff. They they see this as you know one of the big questions, one of the most amazing questions that man has always asked. Is when they look into the stars, is are we alone? Are we alone here? And the reason that Star Trek did so well is it was a television show that explored the question. Is man alone in its universe? Is mankind, is, is human mankind alone in its universe? And here we are with an opportunity to find that out. And everyone's like, nah, let's talk about politics. Let's talk about politics. And, and I think it's ridiculous. I would rather turn on the news and be inundated with maybe there are little green men than practically anything else I can think about talking about right now. So... Yeah, I I hope we learn more, buddy. I hope we learn it's more. A, it's a big question. And according to David Grush, which is this whistleblower, quote, we're definitely not alone. I'd like to learn more. So I will uh, watch that full interview and look forward to any follow-up evidence or actions or discussions about this, because I agree. It could be a really, really big story if it's not just a blue beam psyop. We'll, we'll find out. I don't know. We, we might be seeing a new podcast being born, you know? Uh, exploring the unknown with Pete and Keenan. I don't know. Yes. I don't 
watch that. Uh, my halftime is not quite so cerebral, but uh, it, it is important to me. So I uh, I love jujitsu as, um, again, I keep saying this, many of you who watch the show know, and I've been a, a practitioner of that sport now for 12 years. And it's, um, it's an important part of my day, an important part of what I do to keep myself sane. I'm not particularly good at it. So I don't want to come off as someone who's like, yeah, man, it's rule. Uh, one of the reasons I love it is you don't have to be the biggest. You don't have to be the strongest. You don't have to be old or young. Um, you can be super old and be very, very good at it. It's a great equalizer. And what I like to tell the boys all the time, you know, Amy has two older sons that are my, my boys now. And one of them is a behemoth of a human being. He's a terrifying looking person. And I say to him all the time, be careful who you mess with at bars and stuff, because there could be some nerd and flip-flops that will kill you. Like there are, there are trained killers walking the earth. And that brings me to the UFC. I have loved watching the UFC and boxing, um, all, all physical combat sports since I was a boy. And the UFC gave us a chance to see who was really the baddest. And recently in my, my worldview, we had a wonderful champion and her name is Amanda Nunez and Amanda Nunez burst on the scene not too long ago. And just like a, like a wood chipper went through anybody that messed with her. She took out absolutely everyone that got in her way. She beat the unbeatable and Chris Cyborg. She was a champ champ. She had, she won two different weight divisions and uh, she was also the first um, openly gay uh, champion in, I believe, any professional paid sport. I, I don't know of anyone else that openly came out. I've been trying to find one before we came on the show today, but mm -hmm. she was married to another woman. Um, it was a very big deal. And the UFC treated it like any other sport. Like, yeah, who cares? She's married. Let's yeah. get back to the action. I mean, it was fabulous. Uh, and I, and I, I loved it for that. And she was an incredible champion. She's from Brazil. She gave back to the community she came from. She loved teaching kids. That's she great. loved teaching everyone. She's a great champion. And this weekend, she um, absolutely tore the tar out of Aldana and um, went out in her 30s as a champion, as a champ champ. She put her gloves in the middle of the ring, which symbolizes the end of her uh, career. And she retired. Uh, and her daughter, very little daughter, and her wife, who's also a UFC fighter, came into the ring. She thanked everyone. And it was just wonderful to see a career uh, wow. span the way that it has and such a wonderful champion. It's also kind of nice it happened in Pride Month, uh, if I'm going to be quite frank, not to let you know politics and such get in there. But she was an incredible champion. And in a sport that most times, any combat sport, someone doesn't even go out on their own terms. It was wonderful to see a champion go out on her own terms. So here's to Amanda Nunez and uh, a lady who was an incredible champion for the sport. Congratulations. Yeah, how's that for halftime, Doug? Yeah. <laughs> it's a good halftime. Quick follow-up question on that, just because mm -hmm. I know you do practice and are interested. I always hear about these fights after they come out. Where do you watch them? Does UFC have their own UFC streaming, or is that cable? How do you watch these uh, well, matches nowadays? There's so many leagues. Um, I have, you know, I've got, there, there's one that you can get fight streaming on, but you have ESPN Plus, which has a lot of it. There are regular okay. fights on ESPN. The beginning card is on ESPN. There's pay-per-view. You've really got to follow it to figure out. The bigger fights are always going to be pay-per-view. Um, and then there are actual, for like PFL and things like that, there are streaming channels for it. What's unfortunate is 
it's still a small enough sport that in order for them to pay these guys a, a decent wage, they've got to do a lot of this stuff pay-per-view. So it's changing. Course, okay. It's radically, radically changing. If you don't know who Francis Ngannou is, he went to the PFL so that he could also be a boxer. The guy looks like a real-life superhero. He's a he, he looks like the Hulk. So he's going to box heavyweight while being in PFL, and I think he's going to do a lot for the sport. He's he's uh, I think he's from Cameroon or from Nigeria. He is incredible. And there's another African who's also a champion right now in style bender. And it's another thing about the sport. Like people are from everywhere. So unlike baseball or hockey, anyone from anywhere can rise to be a champion. It's really, it's a, I don't know. I could talk about it for hours. It's like being a vegan. You don't want to get somebody started. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to learning more about it. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll watch a couple matches and I have a couple more well, enlightened questions go. for you. No, we got to go. Right. We got to go to a it. fight. You and I got to go to a fight. All and, right. Uh, oh, you'll be hooked. It's a lot of fun. Can't wait. Yeah. All right. So what do you got for the next topic? All right. Next topic is a, a little bit related to the first one, but um, we are seeing um, a potential UPS worker strike in a couple of weeks here. And this is all within the backdrop of, you know, falling truck demands. Generally, it's softening here domestically in the U.S. So it's, again, one of those things kind of like the rail, kind of like the ports. Now is the time. Apparently, they're having the negotiations and striking, though they may not have as much leverage as they did just a little bit ago. Um, but it's also one of those memories of, you know, you wouldn't have wanted them to stop when things were super desperate. So are you going to remember that and honor that? Again, on this case, I don't know the the nitty gritty details of what's being fought over, negotiated for. Um, but already people are predicting that if this did go through with them handling seven 17 million domestic packages a day, that would be a pretty big shock to suddenly try to replace that with uh, their competitors. And so uh, we may see more political um, interactions or interventions if uh, this gets too close to it. Have you been hearing anything in your discussions or seeing anything on the news and reading in between the lines? What does the yeah. situation look like to you? So this is probably going to be from a, a public relations standpoint, significantly worse than the West Coast port stuff. And, and here's the mm. reason why. If I, I, I call this the ladies in my house politics dynamic. If I say to Amy and our two daughters, hey, listen, there's a port strike and it's going to slow containers down from coming in from the West Coast. They'd be like, oh, that sounds terrible. I bet that's going to make life for you tough at work. Uh, I got to go watch Below Deck. See. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if I say to them, you know, all that crap you're endlessly buying online, there's a good chance that it's going to get significantly more expensive. It's not going to turn up as timely as it usually does. It might not turn up at all. They're going to care. They're going to care more about what I do for a living than they've ever cared before. Because <laughs> the idea of them not being able to get what they want when they want it, if it's on Prime in two days, or if they bought it, you know, from Sephora or from God knows where, I don't even know where this crap comes from. You know, that is the, the American consumer, regardless of their, of their demographic, has become very, very used to getting things in a certain amount of time delivered in a certain way. And the UPS workers know how important a cog they are in that. 
the UPS management also knows this may be the last time they get to put certain rules in place that are going to set them up for automation, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. the use of robotics. They have a lot on the line as well. It's a, I keep saying this and no one really gets it, but it's like the writer's strike. That writer's strike right now is going to make a lot of decisions about how our entertainment is written for centuries. And I feel like this UPS strike is going to have a lot to do about how e-commerce has operated for centuries because it may decide if Doug's beloved drones are going to be used instead of of trucks, if they're going to use, to what degree are we going to use autonomous vehicles rather than drivers? You know, what's it going to mean to have a fully operational warehouse now? Is that going to mean it's autonomous? Are they going to be allowed to do that in districts where they have agreements with unions in place? I don't know. Again, I'm not in the room where they're negotiating these contracts. Thank the Lord, because I can imagine that's got to be tense, and I'm not good with that kind of conflict. So this is a huge, huge, huge deal. And as I said a couple of months ago, I think, the person who's the mouthpiece for the UPS um, union, he is not afraid to throw haymakers in public about what this could mean for the American consumer. He has said a lot of really, really brutal stuff. And he's throwing heat. Uh, so you're going to hear about it. You're going to hear about it in the news. You're going to hear about it everywhere. And we are dangerously close to a work stoppage, and no one's talking about it yet. Just wait till things slow down. But I, I'm I'm thinking about going going buying short on some FedEx stock. Just you know, you know, I don't know if I can do that given what industry I'm in. But man, they they seem to make a lot of money if things slow down on UPS. Could be very interesting. You bring up good points. This was a major story to me, but I did not even consider the effects of, you know, transportation's gotten more news play as things have been a little messed up the last couple of years, but it'll really hit home when it's people's daily packages hitting their house, their shopping, their consumption, or businesses that rely on that type of shipping um, that will make a a much bigger splash as far as news and potentially politics um, Mm -hmm. as that stuff gets in. And you're right. um, I also wasn't considering the importance of the timing of these negotiations for precedence, especially as drones or warehouse automation, different things in place. Uh, There's probably a lot of that long-term strategic thinking going on in these uh, lawyers' minds and these uh, decision makers as they're negotiating. Uh, So yeah, uh, could be very interesting in the next month or two coming up here. Yeah, we got to think long term because, man, are they thinking long term. You know, I heard one person say this um, this bridge that fell in Philadelphia on 95. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever driven on the East Coast, 95 is, is such an important, it's, it's an artery. And when 95 is down, our ability to get up and down the East Coast, it's not just hampered. It's it's like somebody just pulled a, pulled a switch. And that's going to cause traffic all up and down it. If you're using automated trucks, do you think that Americans are going to be comfortable with them on back roads, with them going through places where there's high population areas? I don't think they are, buddy. So they're more comfortable with them being on highways overnight where there's fewer people. If you have a major artery like 95 breakdown, what's it mean to a UPS or FedEx or a larger company that depends on Teamsters? If they're saying, well, you told us we can't drive trucks that time. So there's a difference in our finances now if you want to put us behind the wheel again. 
I mean, I would certainly put things like that in the contract if I were them. And if I were management, I wouldn't want to put that in the contract. So I'm sure things like that are, or I would imagine things like mm-hmm. that would be discussed in that contract. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting, especially if it's a major artery and all of a sudden there's a lot of rerouting. It's one thing, I mean, maybe it's sketchy enough to have one autonomous truck going on a back road. But if all of a sudden you had quite a few other normal drivers, other normal truck drivers, and then lots of AI, it could get pretty messy out there. What a mess. Yeah, what yeah. a mess. All right. Well, that brings me to my, 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 the last topic today, which really is ugly. So Hamburg Sud, which I, um, is owned by our friends at Maersk, lost a, um, an argument over a case with a European furniture importer or, or shipper. I'm not sure how I would describe them. They, they export to import. And this company is alle- alleged that Hamburg Sud was acting in a degree of retribution for um, contract problems and, and disagreements by forcing them to pay certain demurrage, by fiddling about, they wouldn't do certain things on a contract. So they stuck it to them in other areas. They took them to the FMC and they won. They won a $10 million or they, they were fined $10 million. There's that side of the story. We can certainly talk about that. Where I'm much more concerned because I always am. I'm thinking about what's going to happen because of this. You know, I think a lot of importers who went through, and I was one of them when I was at Wayfair. I bought over a billion dollars worth of ocean freight. It was it was a lot of containers, man. Um, and those days were hard. I was very fortunate though that we made such a large purchase of volume that carriers tended to work with us. Very fortunate. The, the smaller people that were working with them oftentimes found themselves in a difficult spot where there are only so many ships and you carriers can't make them, they can't manifest a vessel. There's no magical way to make two 40 footers fit where one 40 footer is supposed to go. So they had to make hard decisions and they did everything that they could to make as many people happy as they could. But in the end, someone's going to be angry. And that anger has cascaded into the days now where things aren't as good. Contracts are are still pretty high. There's a lot of contract rates that are very high and people want to renegotiate them. And carriers are saying, too bad, you signed a contract. And shippers are saying, well, I signed a contract back then too. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't let me get out of it, even though you didn't have space. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of angry. And much like when, you know, two people who've had a disagreement find themselves where the worm has turned. The import community now is very much looking forward to getting their pound of flesh out of the carriers. And um, this is a very unpopular opinion. I'll say it right up front. I think it's dangerous for the shipping consumption community to try very, very hard to punish carriers for the sins of the past, because all we're going to do is find ourselves with fewer choices. We're Hmm. going to find smaller ocean carriers going out of business or being gobbled up by bigger ones. And supply and demand is going to end up going down because we're going to have fewer people to negotiate with. You want carriers to be healthy. I'm not going to tell people how to run their business. 
but going into these negotiations saying it's time for me to deliver some pain along with getting a good deal. It's not a good way of doing business. If you're really into this for the next 20, 30, 50 years, hopefully we've learned some kind of lesson. The shipping community, the ship owners need to have more oversight on them to not let them take advantage of the people who are consuming their services. But again, they seem to have all the leverage. It's up to us as consumers of their products to find a way to not let this happen again by being more of a partner with these carriers than looking for some type of revenge. But I'm telling you right now, Keenan, I have a lot of friends at BCOs. We still talk all the time in all of them, these beneficial uh, cargo owners. They're all gleefully waiting for their opportunity to stick it to these carriers. They're going to eventually regret it. No one forgets anything. No mm. one. And I think this is a time, I, I wish we could have like a truth commission like they had in South Africa, where we could all just sort of sit around and apologize for what happened and move on. But people just don't seem to be in the mood to move on right now. And I think it's not, I think it's very detrimental for the overall health of our community. You bring up good points. and buddy. Again, longer term perspectives, though, compared to, you know, just the, the recent um, retribution or wanting uh, a little bit of uh, compensation for some recent sins past. It's important to keep an eye on the long term of what do we want this environment to look like? Are things going to change if if this becomes the new norm? Are there going to be more mergers and acquisitions and just fewer options in the future? And is that really what you want in the long run? Uh, might not be the best situation. So interesting take as always. Yeah, man. I mean, the last thing I'll, I'll say to this is I, I represent the customs brokerage community above and beyond anything else that we talk about here. And throughout the entire Pandy, all throughout the crunch and the logistics problems, you know what our rates didn't do? Increase. We, didn't, we never charged more because it's not about space. It's about a relationship. And no matter how bad things got and how difficult it was because there wasn't the same amount of people working at customs, there were you know, all the problems that happened. And there were a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. People didn't take advantage of our rates because they appreciated what we did for them. And we didn't take advantage of our clients because we appreciated their loyalty. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there that when, when we brought value to our clients, they stay with us. When it's not just a transaction, they stay with us. And I really wish that that we could find a way for, for our ocean carrier partners to show that value in a way that's more meaningful because they do bring a tremendous amount of value. I don't know if they're always the best at showing it to the consumers that buy from them. And to be honest, I don't always know that customs house brokers do either. And we need to do a better job of that as well. I'll, I'll be damned if anybody ever says that about my service. Um, they're going to know who's doing their entries. Um, but, but yeah, th this... This is troublesome to me, and I want it to be better. Well, definitely we'll be hoping for good outcomes of this in the future and uh, appreciate you sharing your expertise and insight with us and uh, everyone listening here today. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of Global Trade this week. And barring any last minute uh, assignments, uh, it should be as scheduled with uh, Doug and Pete again next week. So uh, Thank you very much. Uh, plug to uh, my employer, Cap Logistics. Thanks for allowing us to come on here and uh, share these insights, ask these questions, make predictions, and be right more often than not. And uh, yeah, keep moving forward one day, one week at a time. All right. Thanks, man. We'll see you soon, Doug. Thanks, Cap Logistics. Take care, everybody. Bye. See ya.